Coaching Inside the Box. A youth soccer coaching podcast. A Brit, a Brazilian, and an American discuss culture and environment and the impact it has on youth development. Can you coach inside the box? Hello and welcome to Coaching Inside the Box, episode 47, and boy do we have an episode for you guys today, because we're going to talk about me the whole time. Andy's got no jokes prepared, Philippe's already done everything he can about why Brazil is the best uh, country that ever existed, and we're going to get to dig in to my background from a soccer perspective. But before we get there, we're still right in the midst of summer. Um, the season is starting to creep back up, at least for us here in Kansas City, and I know Philippe has been slaving away on the fields trying to prepare some kids to play at their best for the fall. And so let's hear in hear from Philippe on that front. Philippe, how's life, man? How's your summer? How are your kids looking for the season upcoming? Um, they're looking fantastic. They're, I mean, I, it, it's fun because when you take the, not the pressure, but like the, the game away and, you know, they want to, you know, when they're playing, they're competing, they want to win and all that. And then when they don't have that on the horizon and they're just training and playing and like obviously – they're having a lot of fun and you know you can see them playing even more freely and I keep pointing that out see that's even more of what we need than all that kind of stuff you know we brought some more talent into the group as well so it's been really fun to see the freedom of the summer is something that I notice in my sessions as well like the kids just come especially you know the season ends we don't take hardly any time off right but usually there's a week or two right after the season ends before we start again and just a week or two away from the game for the kids that I coach they come back like ready to go but ready to show off all of the the footwork that they they've neglected or they haven't been training or the new stuff that they've got the new wrinkles how they're going to take on a player and that's always fun Andy summertime for you I'm just hoping that you know when you refer to these you know these these new kids as new talent i'm just hoping that they're big fast and strong (laughs) (laughs) philippe went out he didn't even watch them play soccer he just got a stopwatch and saw how how high they could jump and how fast they could run (laughs) yeah i just brought a stopwatch you know a camera and then you know sensors and was measuring all the a lot of sensors yeah a lot of sensors sensors. do do they have big biceps (laughs) no but their calves are ginormous (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah well, uh, speaking of summer, Andy, I, I have a distinct memory of my own childhood uh, playing, um, obviously, for you. And every summer you would can, run like a can camp. Can I stop you there? Because, you know, you, you just dissed me. You just slapped my face into the mud. I didn't even try. Usually I yeah, make an effort to. Because I can't remember my own childhood. <laughs> <laughs> I said Andy doesn't have jokes. I was wrong. Just, just, just go to the previous episode and you got a little bit of that. <laughs> Uh, I always remember during summertime, there would always be a week or two where in the midst of the day, in the heat of all heat, you would say, okay, all week we're going to train from 12 to 2, basically a camp, Andy's soccer camp. Um, I, I, and, and, and it was always up by Shawnee Mission South. And we would go and like, I was... I mean, it was hot and it was hard, but it was a highlight of my summer because we'd go and just play. Like there wasn't, it, it was different than our typical training. It was more meant to be an outlet for us to play and have fun. Yeah, I, I remember that we used to, because nobody was at the school. Yeah. You know, even the custodians weren't there during the summer. So we'd go and play soccer golf around the school, you know, and it was like, hey guys, 
aim for the library window. You know? <laughs> <laughs> there was nobody to stop I us. Do, I'd forgotten yeah. about the soccer golf until you mentioned it now. And we yeah. played all around the, the yeah. high school campus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and I made up the, you know, the, the targets for the hole as we went. Yeah. You know, there was always 18 holes and we had the, you know, the greatest time you know, trying to hit the target with the least amount of shots, whether that was a, a goal post on the stadium field, because everything was wide open, yeah. you know, or a trash can on the other side of the parking lot. You know, we just made up the holes as we went, you know, and, and then, you know, you guys counted the number of strikes it took to get to the hole, you know, and I made up the pars and, you know, you know, we did the whole goal thing tied in with the soccer thing. And you guys loved it. You know, you just begged for soccer golf. You know, you that that's a good point. Like I, I think traditionally in the United States, people think, okay, the season ends at the end of May, and we need a two full month. The kids need a two full month break before they train again. <laughs> and like Philippe Blasquez, he's Brazilian, and there was never a break. Break from what? Break, break from for having from fun. fun. Yeah, yeah. But like, but I and I don't think the kids need a two month break. I don't think kids need a break really much at all, generally speaking. But for us, like. The sessions are different during the summer in this really fun and motivating way. And so that reset for me as a player of going and having midday summer sessions that ended with some soccer golf were some of my favorite memories um, from, from growing up from playing. And that's all the, 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 the change or, or reset that I think the kids really need. Yeah. You know, you know the difference is, uh, you know, it's not the kids that need the break; it's the parents and the coaches. Yeah, sure. You know, so you know they're, they're not motivated in the summer, and you know, in all fairness to the parents, a lot of them got vacations planned. Yeah, so the kids are getting some breaks here and there throughout the summer. Yeah, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. and and you know, we we as a club, we're not like some of the other clubs; they take summers off. Mm-hmm. You know, we run all the way through the summer, and we say to our parents, "Look, we know you're going to go abroad. Let's say, you know, two, three of the families." are going abroad for two weeks over Christmas or Thanksgiving time or spring break, you know, and uh, you might not be doing your big trip in the summer. So we run 12 months of the year, you know, with our dual coaching system. And so the kids, you know, the ones that are in town that can't afford to go on vacation, they've at least got their soccer all through the year, you know, and so we're here, we're running, we've organized our system so that 12 months of the year we're operating, yeah. if that makes sense. And during during June and July, especially, you know, like the weeks surrounding the 4th of July, our numbers are lower, but we have enough sessions with fields running next to each other that kids still can get their soccer and have a lot of fun um, uh, without this, this, this pressure that that I, I think sometimes exists around a specific training well, session. Well, and that, and that was the point that I was going to get to. It's The pressure also is the fact that maybe the kids do need a break, but the pressure shouldn't exist, right? The, yeah. pr- the, the kids should be playing through all throughout their year, competing in games, obviously motivating, wanting to win and all that, but they shouldn't feel that pressure, so they shouldn't need any break, right? It should be the same thing all throughout. And then also, w- when you stop for two months to get a break, what about the kids that are from low-income families and the families are working the whole day and they cannot afford you know, a nanny yeah, or point. somebody to yeah. take in that kid somewhere? And, you know, you providing a training session, that kid has something to look for, something to do instead of just sitting at home and, you know, not doing anything. And then, you know, when you not, don't do anything, your mind goes 
places sometimes that they shouldn't go. I was I was talking to my daughter last night. She's going to be a sophomore, um, and this summer has been quite busy for her, both from a club perspective, but also from a high school perspective because they've got camps going on and kickarounds and all this stuff going on. And one of her best buddies from school plays for another club. Um, and on the way home from training last night, she was like, "So and so said they don't they don't start practice until July thirty first. And I was, and she was like, "That would be awful." Because my my daughter's got this personality of like, I don't want to just sit around and do nothing. And so, if 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 we don't have something lined up, I'm going to need you to line something up for me because I want to be busy. I want to be doing stuff. Um, uh, that's different than my youngest. My youngest is very happy to sit at home all day doing nothing if we let him. Uh, we try not to. Um, anyways, I, I found that to be an interesting. Uh, difference between that club um, uh, that uh, her buddy plays for uh, versus ours. There's no pressure during the summer, but the kids can get as much soccer in as they want. I mean, there's stuff going on here every single day of the week. So growing up in England, it it wasn't that you know, people took a break from sports in the summer. It was that the English people switched sports, you know, come the summer holidays from soccer to cricket. Okay. you know, we would have a regular group of four, five, six, seven kids that would get together and play soccer. And that was typically, though, from the end of August all the way through to the end of May. You know, as soon as June, July, you know, rolled around, you know, the guys got their cricket bats out. And they were out there, you know, uh, playing cricket games. <coughs> a lot of them, you know, didn't really look like cricket. But the bat was there and the ball was there. And you were trying to hit the guy's legs while they were trying to protect their legs with the bat. You know, and it was the same creative mentality to... You know what you do in soccer. It didn't look like a real game when you're playing one-on-ones and two-on-twos and stuff. I'm having a hard time picturing this because the only experience or picture I have of cricket is when I watched Downton Abbey on PBS and all the aristocrats got around uh, a field and played cricket once. And so I'm having a hard time imagining you know ten-year-old Andy with his long hair and uh, and, and 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 his ripped jeans playing cricket with all of his, his blue-collar mates. But I, I got to be honest, I I hated summers for that reason uh, in, a, in, in my local but it was my area. only way to hang but, out with some friends yeah you know, come on guys can we play some footy please and, and <laughs> i i was you know good enough at cricket you know to be invited to play on the school cricket team and i did i declined what an honor you know i i only like to bat or to bowl, or to be the wicketkeeper, because you're involved in every single play. Sure. If you know, you know, just like you know, you know, the, what the, you know, I'm not even familiar enough with baseball to know what they call the guy behind home plate. You know, the, the, that is not true. Yeah. You know that that person is called a catcher. What is what is baseball anyway? <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> you know, but, but oh, yeah. you know, it just moved too slowly for me. You know, I played every sport that was dynamic for you know a significant amount of time. Yeah. Cricket was just pedestrian. Because it, what, in the 1860s, they didn't really diagnose ADD, so Seven, you had no 17, ideas, right? 1760s. 1760s, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Next time I'm going to introduce Andy to somebody important, I'm going to say, this is Andy Barney, founder and owner of Casey Legends Soccer Club and former cricket school <laughs> team member. <laughs> <laughs> His cricket game was superb. <laughs> you, you better, you better, Everybody was gobsmacked. <laughs> you, you better hurry up because you know I'm getting on in years, so you know you just you know make it happen you know quickly. Yeah, yeah. You know. yeah. The, the good news is once the once <laughs> once Andy's brain goes here in another couple months, right? Like he might actually think he was a cricketer. <laughs> 
No. <laughs> we should start a Casey Legends cricket club. Uh, let's let's get back to something more interesting. You know, let's get back to soccer. No Making more. fun of you is so interesting. <laughs> cricket, what a what a game. Okay, so we're continuing. We're wrapping up our series of kind of a deep dive into the 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 background um, that each one of us had. Obviously, enormously different English. Andy, Andy in England um, uh, many years ago, many decades ago. Philippe in Brazil, uh, most recent, um, and then me uh, here in Kansas City, United States, culturally, what it was like growing up and learning the game, <clears throat> what we got right, or what perhaps the environment and the culture around us got right, and what we got wrong, or what the culture and the environment around us got wrong. Um, and um, this has been an interesting series of episodes um, for me, even knowing quite a bit about Andy's background and Andy's story, right? And even knowing a fair bit about, about your background and your story, Philippe, it's still been interesting to look at him and start to, to make some comparisons. And I think it's apt, I think it's appropriate that most of our listenership is quite familiar with American soccer and American culture. And so they'll be able to identify easily with, with my experience growing up to some degree. Um, but having this one last, it's so easy to draw comparisons to England and Brazil because we've already gone through those in previous episodes. So I think this is going to play out really well. So the vision that I have, um, I see really three big buckets that matter. As I, as I go back and think about Andy's episode and Philippe's episode, I, I think most of the, the, the conversation and most of the points that were made by the two of you fit in one of these three buckets in terms of major influences on the game and how you learn the game and developed within the game. Family. Uh, culture, the culture, not just of your family, but the culture of your community, of your country, of your, um, uh, of where you grew up. Combined, um, are they one bucket? They could be one bucket, but I actually, am, I'm kind of seeing them a little bit differently. Uh, um, so you're actually saying they're two buckets? Yeah. Because I, I would agree, they're two big differences. Two, two, but I mean, there are some similarities that are, your family's obviously impacted by the culture sure. that they live in, but yes, I have them as two di different buckets. But then I have this other one that's one bucket, and you might disagree and say, let's put them in a few different buckets, which is fine. But really kind of the, 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 the training coaching environment that you exist in, right? So that, that not, not so specifically the soccer, if that makes sense. Right. So Philippe, Philippe often, I mean, you in, in, in great detail that, that, as a youngster, you didn't have a coached environment so much, right? And and I think that's notable. I think there there's a ton to think about and unpeel from that perspective. Um, Andy, uh, you had a coached environment, it seemed, um, as you talked about it. Uh, maybe not quite as, um, but but not a huge coached environment when you were younger, it seemed. Like there was a lot of free, creative soccer play that existed um, on the rec ground out behind your house. Um, whereas me, having grown up in the United States, there was none of that. The only free, non-coached environment was the 15-minute recess we had every day, right, at Northfleet Elementary for me specifically, where I was the only kid that played club soccer, so it was me against literally everybody else. So I said 20 kids chased me around the field for 15 minutes and that was it, um, right? Everything else was very structured, very organized. Um, and I think that um, is some differences. But I, let's, let's start with family because I think you guys spent quite a bit of time talking about 
your family and the influence that family had. And I'd like to start with a story, if that's all right, Andy. Um, so uh, most of you listening are, are familiar with the, what four or five, six years ago, U.S. soccer had a big age group change. We went from essentially the school year that made up our teams to birth year. Um, and it was a, a change that U.S. soccer gave us. It was difficult. It was hard. It broke up friendships. It broke up teams. That wasn't the first age group change U.S. soccer has had. The the, the one that, that, that um, impacted me the most. And without it, I probably wouldn't be sitting here at this table talking to the two of you. Um, occurred in, I think, I believe 18, 1989 or 1990 when U.S. soccer went from birth year to school year. And when they did that, my team broke up. I played for a another club here in town called Avellino. Um, and uh, we oftentimes played against Andy's Legends team, um, beat them soundly. You know, I was like six or seven years old at the time. Um, uh, I mean, beat them by double digits, it felt like every time. And my family, my dad, the leader of my family from a soccer perspective, from a sports perspective, um, said, hey, your, your team broke up. You know, sorry, sorry for that. But it's all right. I found another team for you to go try out for. And I was like, okay, who, who am I going to go try out for? He goes, you can go try out for the legends. And I distinctly remember Andy bawling my eyes out. The legends, they're awful. They get killed. I, we, we, Ter- we ter- we terrorized him. Like hey, that's keep- okay. I cried when I saw you. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're they're terrible, Dad. And no, I there's do. there's no way. I'm not going to go play for the legends. Uh, no, Andrew, you are. And 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 I, I'm not privy to the conversation. My dad's passed since since then, so I'm not privy to the conversation or why he he had this thought. But I'm left assuming only one thing. At one point, walking around All American Indoor Sports, a banister. Um, my dad must have walked upon and run into you, Andy, or heard you talking, giving a halftime speech to your team. And, and, and in that moment, it, it made sense to him that despite the team being bad on a score sheet at six or seven years old against the team that I played for, uh, my dad realized that if I was going to uh, be the best I could be, he needed to have me playing with the legends. And so from a family perspective, that influenced my dad not being a soccer player was enormous because um, um, I certainly wouldn't be the player that I became without having played my entire youth career for you, Andy, and for Legends. Does that? Do you have any memory of that first introduction to my dad, Andy? Well, I remember your dad coming up to me and saying, "You know, like, I've, I've got this kid." You know, and um, you know, he said he started off by this. He said, "You've seen that? You've seen the movie Quasimodo." <laughs> you know, he said, "You've got to take pity on this kid." You know, he's, you know, he's, he's. You know, no, I'm just kidding, of course. I was going to say, probably Andy was the only one who took you, but <laughs> let's, let's, yeah, let's keep with I that. Mean, I, there was part. a tryout. We played 1v1s the whole time, I remember. I, I've got no memory of where I first met your dad, and, yeah, and yeah. I, I just remember, you know, seeing you and thinking that, you know, you had, a, you know, some raw ability. You know, you, you were quick, you know, you were enthusiastic to a ridiculous degree. You still are. You know, you know, uh, obviously relative to you know age and stage of life, um, and you know, and and I I looked at what you had and I thought to myself, it's very raw, but you know I think I can turn you know that you know that raw energy into you know a spitfire of a player that is is highly impactful for for the game for the teams he plays on. So, and if you think about it, like putting yourself like we've all coached 
dozens and dozens and dozens of American kids. So like culturally, it's a little bit different now than it was in the 90s. Um, now that it's, it's oftentimes for us to have parents that played some level of, it's, it's not uncommon to have some level of soccer from a parent perspective. In the, in the 90s, that wasn't the case. Um, but all of, all of the American parents have to identify a place for their kids to go play. Right. And, and so for those listening to it that are parents, obviously, you can identify with that pretty easily for you as coaches. Um, I think it, it highlights the importance of creating a philosophy or creating a, an environment and a culture within your team, that, the way that you're going to train them and then communicating that effectively to the people around you. My dad, because of some piece of communication, it's not because the Legends team was good by any stretch, right? They were getting killed um, uh, in the games. And he didn't have the knowledge to understand the skills or anything or the none. way they play or what they were doing. None. But there was some piece of communication, and, and Andy's too old to remember whatever it was, but there, were, there must have been some piece of communication that, that allowed my dad to drink the Kool-Aid. And I do remember as a youth player... Um, you know, my dad passed when I was 12. I played for the legend at starting at six or seven. So for five or six years, my dad was a ardent Kool-Aid drinker, um, always talking to me about getting the ball out at home or getting the ball out at home with me. Um, we used to play this game where he'd be grilling up dinner and he'd throw the ball in the yard and I'd run as fast as I could to get to the ball. And then, and then he would count out loud uh, to and and I would have to do ten skills before I got back to the barbecue grill, right? And and so it was our way of connecting. But my dad believed in in, in legends and what we were doing. And without him getting that effective communication up front, um, so basically your dad he, played fetch with you. Yeah, hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent. But but this enthusiastic seven or eight year old was all in. Oh yeah, I bet. <laughs> so here's here's the interesting thing as as you're talking. You know, I, I have a vision of, of your dad, right? You know, and, um, and this, is, this is kind of interesting because I've never thought about this before. This is the first time I've ever thought about this. Um, but your, your, you know, your mom and dad weren't the stereotypical soccer parents. If you think about the team parents that we had, um, you know, and you think about you know, John Sweeney Sr. or Jack Brosman or, or Cliff Pummel, you know, they, you know and, and you go through all the parents in your mind, what did they all have in common that your dad didn't have? Uh, well, Cliff Pummel, Pummel, John Sweeney were both athletes. Um, all three of those would have fit into upper middle class. My family was squarely middle class or maybe even lower middle class growing up. Um, so I don't know if those are, are what you're mentioning. Yeah, you know, the, it was the, the athletic factor, you know, and I could look at the, you know, the, the parents and I could see, you know, um, you know, slim, trim, 17, 18 year olds, yeah. you know, and, you know, that were, that were, you know, had a genetic advantage in terms of being athletes, you know, and I, I can honestly say that did factor into a lot of my decisions. Sure. You know, is, you know, I was looking at, you know, creating a relationship that I wanted to last all the way through yeah. until the kids went to college. So I wanted to make sure that, you know, I, I didn't have a, a, you know, families on board that didn't fit that long-term image of, you know, our family are, are athletes, you know, and, and your mom and dad, though, didn't fit that image. No, 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 not at all. No. You know, and, and so, um, you know, but you did. You know, you were a ball of energy. 
you know, and so despite the fact that your mum and dad didn't fit that image, your dad, as I spoke to him and I was investigating the possibility of having you on the team, your dad was a great salesman, by the way, Andrew. Yeah. He, he had the ability to sell his commitment, your commitment, the family's commitment, you know, and your mum was an educator. And, you know, so I found out that your mum was a teacher. You know, your dad was really good at promoting his willingness to back you up. And he more than backed you up. You know, he always had you where you needed to be, you know, and, you know, you know your mum and dad were fantastic legends parents. You know, so, I, you know, when I, when I picked kids, I didn't just buy into the kid. You know, I bought into the family and they had to buy into us. Yeah. You know, and, and that was the difference. And your mum and dad had, you know, the, the teaching background, the intelligence, the enthusiasm, the desire and when I chatted to them, you know, and I thought, yeah, I got to give this kid a chance. You yeah. Know? yeah. Yeah. You know, if that makes sense. So, and we, we talked, we talked through this entire episode or this, this series of episodes of like, let's talk about what we got right. So when we, t- when we talk about this family bucket, um, my, I got it right. Right. And I, actually, if we evaluate all three of us, I think all three of us would say our family got it right. Right. Like Andy, you grew up in a soccer family, uncle Vic, your dad, like it was a part of your DNA. You didn't really have a choice. I mean, you obviously had a choice, but, um, it I was, didn't. It, it, it was so <laughs> baked into the way that your family lived that th- there was really no other scenario other than you falling in love with the game. Well, with my dad, honestly, I did have a choice. He did not, in any way, shape, form, or fashion, push me into this game. Yeah, but but you were watching his love for the game, right? The culture, yeah. and the love for it, the family culture, you know, enveloped me. Yeah, you know, but he was in no way a, a pusher and a prodder to get me to do what he wanted me to do. Yeah, yeah, I'm the same way. My dad never really like you have to do this, you have to do this, but it was like Brazil, and Brazil was soccer in Brazil, especially in the nineties, was like. Wow. Sure. And then, you know, I saw my dad playing and my memories is what going on the weekends to watch my dad play and he was incredible. So, I mean, there was no way I wouldn't fall in love with it. Yeah. And, and I, I've spoken about my Uncle Vic who played for Napoli, you know, when they were promoted from Serie B to Serie A back in 1945-46, you know, and he was completely different from my dad. He was the eldest. He was this go-getter, you know, you know, the, you know he, he was a very dominant figure. You know, and, uh, you know, he used to give, apparently, I, I don't remember this because my, uh, my older cousin, Victor, was, was uh, I, I'm guessing, five or six years older than me. And so I don't remember watching Victor play when he was younger and seeing how, you know, my Uncle Vic related to his son. Um, but my cousin, Duncan, we're in the same, birth, you know, school birth year. We played a lot, you know, after, you know, we both joined, uh, you know, played semi-professionally for Oxford City who just got promoted to the division that Wrexham were in last year, interestingly. So now Oxford have two teams in the top five divisions. My cousin Duncan and I played at Oxford City, and and we were playing in in the stadium, and my Uncle Vic was giving Duncan hell from the stand. You know, and I remember, because that used to destroy Duncan's ability to play. He'd get into Duncan's head, and Duncan went to pieces a lot of times when Vic started getting on him. You know, and I remember walking up to the stand in front of all these people, you know, and I stood, you know, outside of the touchline, you know, and I pointed up to my Uncle Vic and I said, you shut the F up as loud as 
<laughs> as I could. And I was 17. Yeah, yeah. But I was the youth team captain, you know, and you know, and so I took over and he got up and he left the stadium. Because <laughs> he knew he was wrong. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. he was destroying Duncan's ability to play. Yeah. You know, and uh, you know, and I, I walked, you know, ever since then I've thought, my God, what you know. You know, how did you have the guts to do, to do that? Because he was a fiery, feisty guy, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uncle Vic. D- yeah. Different to my dad. Yeah. You know, it would, you know, being a, my dad was more of a boxer when he was younger and learned to control his emotions. Yeah. You know, my Uncle Vic, you know, ha- didn't have that same level of self-control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it was, you know, once again, environment, you know, and, and you know, just, you know, what, you know, your birth order... You know, being the oldest kid sure out of five kids mm-hmm. makes a big difference, you know? Yeah. yeah. And uh, But let's get back to your story. Okay, so 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 let's talk culture for a bit, right? So so that, that from a family perspective, at least in the early stages, that's what my family really got right, um, um, was making the decision for me to get involved in Legends. Um, you know, I... I Honestly, I, I was I, I ended up being quite good, right? I could I was I was skillful on the ball. I, I've always been a people pleaser and an enthusiastic person, as Andy pointed out. And so when Andy's yelling skill, homeboy's ready to do as many skills as it takes to get another piece of of, of vocal praise from Andy. Like that's just how I was. And so I picked up skill skill quickly. I was I'm I'm quite athletic, um, uh, not so much anymore. Was then right? So like it worked for me. But had I not, if had I ended up with another coach that didn't um, tap into the enthusiasm that I brought to the game and didn't encourage me to to go for it and do skills that I really like got into, I very well could have fallen away from the game and 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 fallen in love with another game. I could have been a basketball player, a baseball player, a football player. Like I was an American kid that liked all the sports and wanted to do all the sports, and it just so happened to work out that my dad was and and mom. But I I think really my daddy probably drove that bus was bright enough or saw the the opportunity for me enough um, to get me involved with legends and then supported me like crazy um, uh, for the rest of his life specifically. So, um, so, so that's the family side. I'll come back to the family because there's some things my family got wrong, not intentionally, but got wrong that I think I- impacted how far I went in the game. And I'll bring that up later. Um, but let's talk culture for a minute. So culture in the United States, um, from a soccer perspective, um, man, boy was... Any 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 kid from the '80s and '90s, they were swimming so far upstream compared to Philippe in Brazil or Andy in England or, or so many other cultures across the world. Um, uh, but there were some things that our culture got right. Um, a lot that it got wrong. We talk about it often. We'll talk about it today. But um, that got right or or worked out in my favor. In 1994, the United States hosted the World Cup. That was right smack dab in the mid of my middle of my formative years. Um, I'd have been ten or eleven during during that during I'd have been ten during that World Cup, and so so obviously Kansas City didn't host any games, but the games were here. My grandpa was walking around with a World Cup USA nineteen ninety four Switzerland hat because my family's Swiss. Um, my grandpa was born in nineteen sixteen. Has I'm sure in his entire life never once kicked a soccer ball, but. 
he was into the World Cup or cared that it was it was happening. And boy, did I walk around with this badge of 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 of, of um, excitement or pride at school because I was the soccer kid at school, and and the kids were hearing about the World Cup, and the teachers were hearing about the World Cup, and they wanted to talk about it with me or Sunday night dinners at my grandparents' house, like for that for that for the few weeks leading up to the World Cup, during the World Cup, and the few weeks after the World Cup in the front yard. My grandpa wasn't watching us play wiffle ball or football with my brother and my cousin. My grandpa was watching us play soccer because the World Cup was going on. And so that, I think, had a, 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 an impact on the way that I saw the game um, from an from a, um, excitement and enthusiastic perspective. In 1994 was the first World Cup I remember. And the World Cup has been my favorite month ever since every four years, right? And so um, I think that was something that our, 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 our culture in the United States got right-ish. But what came right after the World Cup? MLS started, right? 96. 96, right? It was supposed to start in 95 and it got delayed by a year. I remember distinctly getting the mailer, uh, uh, you know, MLS, new professional soccer league. This is why my dad was still alive. And it listed like 30 cities that might get a team. And I was like, dad, it's got, I remember going and showing to him when I got pulled it out of the mail. Dad, it says Kansas city might get a team. He's like, I don't know, son, maybe they will. And I was like, well, dad, if they get a team, can, can we go? Like, you know, like, and I was like, yeah, for sure. We'll go kind of deal. Um, uh, and it was April 12th, 1996 was the first game for the now sporting KC, then KC Wiz. It was at Arrowhead stadium. And my dad organized a, um, a, uh, uh, a, a tailgate for our legends team, um, uh, to go to the game. And my dad got it all. My dad was so excited about this. Right. So he got it all together. Like I, you know, I was pumped up, brought, you know, brought my friends. We all went, there was a big tailgate. We had Mr. Good sense sub sandwiches in the, in the parking lot. It wasn't quite like a chief's tailgate had so much fun, went to the game and had the time of our life at the game. And like, I remember at the time being a 12 year old thinking, man, like how lucky am I that the sport that I love there, I'm here with 21,000 people here watching this game. And it was another thing that my culture was starting to get right in compared to just a few years before. Um, it ties in with my family a little bit. My dad passed away in a car accident two and a half weeks after that game. And so that was the only game that I got to go to with my dad, but it's a memory that has stuck with me forever. Um, I can still vividly picture my dad standing in the stands um, of the stadium um, for that game. I think, I think we beat the Colorado Rapids 3-0. I think it was something like that. It was, it was a good game for us. Anyway, so the culture started to get it right for us. Uh, Philippe, you weren't in the United States in the 90s, probably didn't care at all about the United States in the 90s. Boy, have things changed. Uh, but Andy, you remember it. Um, what was, do you have any memory or, or thoughts in terms of seeing some type of cultural shift happen from the 94 World Cup to MLS kicking off in 96? Um, that, or am I just looking at this with rose-colored glasses having childhood memories attached to it? Did it impact the soccer culture for us here in Kansas City with those two things happening during that period? I think, you know, Kansas City's had multiple things that impacted the culture, you know, and, uh, you know, it's the, the, the history of Kansas City is interesting because, you know, we, we used to be the second fiddle to St. Louis, but over the last few decades that, that switched and Kansas City teams became on the whole stronger 
even though St. Louis is a much bigger city than Kansas City, you know, Kansas City teams actually became stronger at the youth level than the St. Louis teams. And if you look at the Maguire Cup, which is the under-19, you know, that was kind of the benchmark for who had the best youth program, you know, through history. You go back and you look at Maguire Cup records, and you'll see that St. Louis dominated through the decades, from the turn of the century, you know, like from the 1800s to the 1900s and on, all the way through, you know, the, the 20th century, St. Louis was the dominant power, you know, uh, in the early decades, you know, up until about 1970, you know, mid-1970s. And then St. Louis started to disappear. Well, Kansas City, you know, really came into its own, you know, uh, in, the, you know in every sense. More national organizations have been run out of Kansas City than any other city in the history of the game. You know, people wonder why the World Cup came to Kansas City, and the World Cup organizing committee did an amazing job of selling the committee, uh, selling the city, you know, as a venue for the World Cup. But, you know, hundreds of people, thousands of people had worked for decades before that to make Kansas City, you know, the soccer city for North America. You know, and that's what it's known as now. You know, and the Kansas City is known as North America's soccer city. You know, and, and just to point that out, and I'm not sure about the MLS. I, know, I never looked at the stats, but you look even in the indoor game, the Kansas City Comets put way more yeah. fans than any other franchise. And that goes and back for to example, the 80s. San, Die San Diego Soccer is the big, big, big dog in the MASL. Has won, I don't know, 20 titles, and you know, back I think they won the last three. And attendance-wise, the comments just, so, just so kill it. When I came here, you'd have been about one year old in uh, 1985. Yeah. And, um, you know, the guy that brought me over here, you know, the, you know Ron Mach, um, who's still the owner of, uh, of, you know, Challenger Sports Camps and, you know, and, and still has uh, an indoor facility or two indoor facilities in town. Um, you know, Ron took us, you know, the very first week we arrived, took us to a comments game, you know, And there were 15,000 people in the stands. Yeah. The place was rocking. And, you know, there's light shows and, you know, you know, the, the, you know, the Comet satellite, you know, the Comet came down out of the rafters, you know, on that rope. And, you know, and it was a mirror ball and the lights were, you know, flashing off of it, you know. And, you know, the music is pumped up and the crowd is raucous. And, you know, and, and you know, I'm sat there thinking, you know, this is as good as anything I've ever seen in England in terms of the atmosphere at a pro game, mm -hmm. you know, and it was, you know, you know, six on six indoor, mm -hmm. you know, you know, and uh, I couldn't believe the passion for the, you know, the, the indoor game in Kansas City. It was a whole new experience for me. Mm -hmm. And at that point in time, I thought I'd pretty much seen it all. Yeah. You know, and, you know, so, you know, Kansas City then built on that foundation You know, the, the Comets players brought in that expertise. They became coaches in the community. You know, I started British soccer camps that you know, later became Challenger soccer camps and the biggest camp company in the world. You know, and, you know, we brought over hundreds of British camps and hundreds of them stayed in the, in, in the area. You know, over the years, they met American girls, they fell in love, they got married, they found a way to get, you know, legal visa status you know, and became youth soccer coaches in the community. And if you look at the organizations throughout Kansas City, in just about every club, there's British guys that came in through the Challenger Sports British Soccer Pipeline that are leaders in that club environment. Just about every club in the city. 
and we've mentioned this before probably on this this podcast i'm not sure what episode or which episodes but kansas city is the second highest participation rate per capita in the united states for soccer it is a it is a hotbed for soccer um, it's bounced between the two first and second first and second for for, the, for, for decades last, for the last 20 years yeah yeah and and so um and, a, and there's a lot of factors that go into it and uh, we don't have time today to unpeel every single one but a lot of it has to do with the ever ever presence of professional soccer that's kansas city's had going back to the late 60s with the spurs and in, in i think the nasl through the comets onto the wizards of the Wiz, now sporting kc um uh, kc current um uh so that's been part of it obviously the british coaches that you just mentioned that's that's played a pretty big role as well which has helped to sprout all the national organizations that come out of kansas city right our organization is a national organization the um, united soccer coaches is based in kansas city the futsal uh, national uh, governing body is, is based in kansas city and so NAIA. on nai is based in kansas city so there's quite a bit here um, but when we talk about things that, that the culture, you know, I, I mentioned, at least in my experience, that things that the culture was starting to get right. Like, it, I mean, it was nowhere near the level of Brazil or England from a professional soccer environment that could provide kids with this, 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 this uh, something to look to, 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 to build toward the game. But it was an improvement on what had happened before. And it certainly captured my attention and gave me a sense of pride walking around town. Um, perhaps negative pride at sometimes like, no, no, I'm the soccer guy, not you. Like, you, like you you weren't into soccer until this World Cup showed up. I've been into it for years kind of deal. I certainly had that chip on my shoulder. Um, but things that, that, that our culture has gotten wrong um, is we talked – you guys talked extensively during your um, stories about the impact rebound surfaces and walls had on your game, right? Andy, you talked about the window and the patio out behind your door and, and the good things about that, that rebound surface and the bad things about that rebound surface. But it was a rebound surface, right? Philippe, you talked at great length about um, the, the, the concrete jungle of Rio, right? And there wasn't, you know, no matter what way you turn, there were rebound surfaces and many of them were literally uh, a soccer field or a futsal court, if you will. Like, it's just concrete for kids to play on. And there are rebound surfaces everywhere. And here in Kansas City, in the suburbs, which is where I grew up, there wasn't a rebound surface to speak of for miles. And so um, we didn't have access to that. So culturally, um, uh, you know, how do we solve that? What was our solution? Well, uh, luckily, you know, Andy really saw the value in, 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 um, rebound surfaces. So Andy started telling our parents, leaning into the families to, to find us the kickback goals, you know, the metal, metal rim goal with a net there that provides a rebound surface. We got one, but my backyard didn't really lend itself to it. So I didn't use it any, even a fraction of what I could have used it, but other guys on the team, Ryan Kaufman did, um, during the winter months, uh, we trained inside and we used that wall like crazy people um, uh, from a rebound surface playing wall ball. Um, um, and so there were some elements of luck that, that, we, that I had in terms of access to that. Um, but we talk about this at great length on this podcast, this facility we're sitting in. We've got it. Like we finally figured it out. Started in 2009 when we did the first facility, but it wasn't really until probably 2000. 16, 17, 18, before we really figured it out from a perspective of having a facility, every kid in the club trains, you know, all week in the indoor facility, we don't train outside, having 60 some odd box soccer courts through this facility, now expanding this facility, we've got a few of them across Kansas City, we've really started to, in my mind, create a, 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 an environment 
that 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 fits within American culture. So it's organized. It's organized opportunity for kids to have access to these rebound surfaces, recognizing that the greatest players in the world grew up in concrete jungles where they had rebound surfaces aplenty. But in the United States, American soccer or American culture, moms and dads aren't going to take their kids into the inner city in Kansas City and drop them off and say, go find a wall to kick a ball against. I'll pick you up in, in, in two hours. That's not going to happen. And so we've created it and brought that, 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 that to, the, to the kids to try to, to, to fit within American culture. And, that's, and just to, I think that's important to point out, one of the reasons that I fell in love with Legends is everything that when I looked back at myself as a player growing up, it was what I was missing, what would have made a difference. And it was obviously the things that made the difference for me to be good, like the environment, which Legends replicates, the freedom of play that Legends replicate, the direction, because there's a coach who believes in that philosophy and will guide you through the right direction for your specific training at home and the skills that you're going to work on and everything uh, that the kid needs to the game. So, I mean, it's really hard for, to replicate the environment, the culture in a macro, right? But it, in, especially in the indoor setting where everybody trains together and, you know, we have this community feeling, we're in a smaller spectrum replicating the culture as well, right? So I think what we're doing here, it's exactly, you know, what, what we're, we all in a certain way had elements that we were missing as a kid, right? And that's what we try to do here. And I think that's that's the key for, for success. And so. I want to do a vignette before I give it to Andy for a second, uh, for those listening. So you're like, man, you know, I, I've been putting myself in your shoes as a listener. Man, I, I, these guys are interesting-ish, right? I like listening to them. You keep coming back. You're listening again. So you must kind of like, <laughs> at least Andy's in our bad jokes. But um if only we had that indoor facility in my, in my area, like, uh, you know, they, they talk about this and it sounds wonderful and I'm sure it's great, but like, there's just no way it could happen here. And I want you as a listener to know you could have one that they're like, yes, we have built them out and spent a lot of money to do it, but we've also figured out how to, um, how to build them out, um, in, in a way, you know, in a warehouse uh, on a small footprint in a super cost effective way. Um, and so as you're listening to this, if you're like, man, it'd be cool to have one in my area, but that's not possible. Reach out to us because we have a staff here that can partner with you, um, and help you, um, build out a, a small TSB or soccer box facility in your area and your culture, your environment, your community can have access to the rebound surfaces that Philippe had growing up that, um, uh, that were better than Andy had growing up, if that makes sense. And, and you were talking, you know, I agree with everything you said that you were talking though about, you know, your team, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the original 84s and then the 83, 84s after the age group changed. And you can directly look at the culture of the kids on that team and the families, and you can see why it was that some of those kids didn't go on to play college soccer, you know, because of two things. The physical environment at home 
and the family preference for different sports. Correct. Yeah. That so, was, you picked too many athletic kids whose dads were, you know, you know, professional level I did baseball players. a great players. job of picking athletic kids. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I had, you know, D1 dads that would play baseball D1. Or football Or football D1. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, Joseph Ferguson, you know, yeah. he can play D1, you know, his dad. And you know, Joseph ended up being the, the, the quarterback at Northwestern. Yeah, he played in one, D1 bas- or football. Yeah, right? quarterback. Yeah, yeah, yeah quarterback. Know, he was the yeah. man. You know, yeah, yeah. he was that brave, creative leader. We trained a lot of that brave, creative <laughs> yeah. leadership. You know, Joseph could go the whole field and score goals. You know, but you know, it, it was too much in their DNA. You know, you know. So Joseph ended up being a quarterback because that's what his dad Ken loved and wanted him to do. You know, and it, it, it's kind of like Darren Sproles. You know, we trained Darren Sproles, and he became the 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 leading all-purpose points getter in the NFL. Yards, yards in you the know, NFL. Yeah. Because the family culture. Larry was a football player. His dad. Yeah. You know, great people. You know, Annette, rest in peace. You know, lovely lady. You know, good good family, great people. Um, but you know, I barked up the wrong tree if I was looking at longevity because. It was obvious that Darren was going to be, by age 12 or 13, totally a football player. You yeah. know, he was going to specialize. And I, I, I thought maybe I could break that, you know, that desire to play the number one parent sport. Mm-hmm. You know, and really, you're, you know, you're climbing the wrong mountain if you think you're going you're gonna to be able to do that. You know? yeah. And that wasn't possible. Well, in your family, you know, your mom and dad didn't have that absolute adi- you know, adherence and love for one sport. I mean, so they were willing to embrace the new sport. That's, if that's, that makes sense. That's, that's what my family got right. That's a really good example. I mean, my dad loved all sports. My dad enjoyed watching me play any sport that I went to, but my dad kept saying, no, you're not going to play football. You don't need to play football now, right? Like, sure, you can play baseball, but you got a soccer game right now. We're not going to go to the baseball game. Like, right. my dad put soccer in front of me because he saw probably less the sport value and more the brave creative leadership and the value that you as a coach gave me versus the baseball coach versus the football coach that, that, that were offered. And that's, pro- I would assume that's why he said, no, 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 let's, let's, let's focus. Let's pri- prioritize soccer over those other sports. And so anybody that starts watching soccer and getting involved with soccer falls in love with soccer. Let's be honest. Like seriously, I'm not even kidding. <laughs> uh, not in the nineties. Like my mother, Fleet, sorry, my mother, the nineties, my mother-in-law, Got every Comets game she wanted to go now, but it's and di- she watches soccer now. Twenty five years ago, it wasn't that way. It wasn't that way in the United States. The United States culturally has made so much progress on that front, and now kids are choosing soccer when they could choose basketball, basketball or baseball, um, and that didn't happen twenty five years ago. So, so let's take four other kids on your team. We had four state tennis champions yeah. on your team. We had Michael Brosman. We had Ryan Kaufman, we had Corey Ferrambi and CJ Rodney. Yeah. Did they live in different states? How did they came they all win in the same state? Singles doubles, they were they played their high schools. Oh, okay. You know, okay. And Michael Michael went to a smaller school, Pembroke Hill. So he was in a different categorization different class, to Ryan yeah. and Corey. Oh, because you got the classes, yeah. yeah. I didn't grow up in America, so <laughs> that, and hadn't had kids yet. So well, it was, you know, it was a valid question. Yeah. You know, but you know, these kids and you know, why were they so into tennis? It was the mums. Yeah. You know, with Corey, both dad and mum played tennis. You know, so that was preordained with Corey. You know, with with the Brosmans, you know, Jack wasn't a great tennis player, but Fran was crazy about tennis, a really good player. Uh, you know, and, and that that was the family ethos was in towards tennis in, the, in that environment. Johnny Sweeney went and played baseball in college. Mm. His dad was absolutely fanatical about baseball. 
How Kyle ended up being, you know, still with our organization to this day, I don't know because his dad was fanatical about baseball and golf. And basketball. I didn't know he was that fanatical about was, Yeah, because I think, I, think, I think Kurt played college basketball. Seriously? Potentially, yeah. I yeah. know that, you yeah. know, that he was fanatical about baseball and golf. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and so, you know, my frustration with Kyle is that he was hardly ever at soccer practice because <laughs> he was always off doing baseball yeah, or time. golf. Sure, yeah. You know, and so... So, you know, and, you know, your dad, though, was, you know, totally into soccer, you know, and uh, Larry Freever, although he played basketball D1 in Texas, he was totally into soccer, you know, and, you know, Brian Williams, his family were totally into soccer. Jesse, Jesse's totally. family, Jesse Baker, totally into soccer. Nobody more so than, than Jesse's family. So all of these guys, you know, went further in the game. Brenton Kennison had phenomenal athleticism. But the family was into football, so he ended up playing D1 for KU football. Yeah. You know, and I mean, did we have a special group or what? Just about everybody played, you know, college something. Yeah. You know, you know, from the original group that, that I selected. Well, shoot, Aaron Cuttis was a high school All-American and elected not to play college soccer. I think he was but, being recruited by SLU. Yeah, oh, yeah. He was, you know, and, and, you know, CJ Rodney elected not to play college soccer. Mm -hmm. They both followed their girlfriends to KU. And, uh, you know, CJ Rodney was recruited by Coastal Carolina. Yep. And I thought to myself, I'd love to go and be in a beach town, you know, play D1 soccer. I mean, it was all right there for him, yeah. you know, but he followed his girlfriend just like Aaron followed their girlfriends to KU. And Aaron was, um, was NCAA All-American, you know, when he was senior in high school. Yeah. You know, he was like top recruit out of Kansas, yep. according yep. to the the NCAA, you know, which is now United Soccer Coaches, you know. And so, you know, these kids were special kids. Your whole team was a special team, sure. you know, but they were fragmented by all of these different aims and objectives. Colby Parks, D1 yep. Baseball. Yeah, and you he was a really good cross-country runner as well. Yeah. It, um, so, you know, we had these incredible athletes with incredibly sporting, motivated families but they had their passions for something else, the parents. Yeah. And the kids inevitably follow, to a certain degree, those passions. But, but that culture is changing. Soccer is, 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 at least in my experience in Kansas City, I assume in most places across the United States, that culture is changing to where kids are, are, are at, a, at, a more, um, at a higher rate choosing soccer and prioritizing soccer, um, whereas you know, in my generation, they weren't. And so that's something that my generation got wrong or, or, or could have had better. Um, it's still not Brazil's level, right? It's still not England's level but it's progress um in a way that matters um i mean uh, with the 350 million people population i mean even with all the other community sports i'm the u.s is in, on track you know if the development is shifted to a better approach great point right uh to become i mean the number one sport in, in the country and i think it can be it can be a powerhouse. It can compete with with the big dogs in the world stage. It, it, I it really can, but it's, it's got to. There's such a gap. And twenty we talk thirty about years. All the time. I'm talking twenty thirty. No, years. I mean the problem we have is there's. And this is why this podcast exists. There's a gap in terms of understanding Correct. how to develop Bingo. the players. Like Bingo. the American culture negative is that it's got too much of this football um, drill based. I'm going to tell you what to do and and safety first um, uh, um, attached to it. Um, yes, we have the resources, but we don't currently on a wide enough uh, uh, 
platform um, have the the attitude that it takes to get to that level. And sadly, the Women's World Cup has just kicked off. The U.S. women play tonight, and I think I think within the next, I think we're going to be having an episode here in a few weeks that says, "Oh, what has happened to the U.S. women's national team? The rest of the world has caught us. We we invested in in, in it." earlier than everybody else and kicked everybody's butt for a long time but now everybody else is taking it serious but, and, and but we're, uh, we're looking up I'll, I'll tell you this it's a cycle so you had Italy dom- dominating the 30s and then you had Brazil dominating in the dominating the late 50s 60s and early 70s and then Brazil disappeared for 24 years you know had good teams but didn't make anything happen and then you know Germany had its peak years Maradona's era Argentina had its peak years Argentina a lot of times they didn't even get out of the group stage until now after 30 plus years, no, almost 40 years, I don't know, uh, won again, you know? So it, it's cycle. It's it's all cyclical. There We can talk about countries that have been dominating. No, since for, I, I was thinking about that the other day, the last country that actually, you know, made, won two World Cups in a close span was Brazil, 94 and 2002. Since then, everybody won once. In the last twenty five years, that's that's. I mean, the game's become no, so more nobody, global. So nobody's yeah. do- dominating. So I think you, the U.S. will be able to compete. You know, if obviously there, there is a shift, and I know I think you the the U.S. women's will get back on track. You know, I think real, realizing the problems. You know, it's so way to fix it. It's the first step, at least. I appreciate your optimism, but I don't share it. So. <laughs> And I, I think that the uh, you know the United States is going to be gradually more and more competitive because of the numbers, because the game is rising in popularity. Correct. Um, I think the thing that's going to hold back the United States is this mentality on the part of the coaching community that you, that you should be doing two things to a major degree from about age thirteen onwards, and those two things are rondos and pattern plays. Mm-hmm. You know and. Um, you know, I've got significant experience with, you know, uh, being involved in programs as, uh, you know, a coach where, you know, th- those things have been used uh, extensively. And I don't see those things, you know, um, being related to the game in any meaningful ways in terms of transition play. You know, um, you know, it, Rondo's, you know, you don't move. You don't go from north to south. And that's an essential part of the game. You've got to go from closer to your goal to closer to the other goal. You know, whilst creating goal-scoring opportunities, there aren't any goal-scoring opportunities in Rondo. You don't transition. You don't go north to south. Nobody's moving from their square yard or two of area. You know, and so, you know, it's, it's a very poor alternative, you know, for, you know, one-on-ones, two-on-twos, three-on-threes, where you're transitioning, going to goal. It never stops. You know, team in, team out. You know, and players are hands on these exhausted multiple times of practice. And then the pattern play situation, it doesn't work unless you take out defenders. You can't do pattern plays with any type of meaningful success while, you, while you've got active defenders in. Mm-hmm. So it's completely unrelated to the game where there's always active defenders. Mm-hmm. You know, so you can work on pattern play after pattern play. And I've seen it done for months and not seen anything in the game that approximates that pattern play. Yeah. You know, and you know, I, I've watched it for months being done. And I didn't see it once in the game scenario. And this is with men. You know, this is, you know, an adult men's team. You know, and a high-level adult men's team. You know, and so, you know, and I'm standing there on the sidelines waiting for that one moment where, you know, the, the, the guys actually put together something that looked like a pattern play in the game with defensive pressure. Didn't happen. 
Not once. But you you look at and Andy and I have been having conversations on that and you look at Manchester City and you look at the way, you know, that Guardiola plays, super positional, super structured, but within creativity in that structure, like they move around and you know, but they keep the structure. And they have the patterns, they pass, 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 pass. But every play ends up decided by an individual moment of brilliance. Every play is, uh, after they did all the patterns to get out of like a little pressure, it's a through ball from De Bruyne. It's Gundogan doing a magic flip. It's Holland spinning somebody sure. and manhandling somebody. It's a few folding coming off the bench and doing a move. It's Bernardo Silva dicing up people. You know, it's so it always, you know, it were it, it does something for them, but then at the end of the day, what wins it for them is that they have the big pocket, the big wallet, and they have unbelievable talent. Yeah. And that's what it comes down to. Pep Guardiola in his whole career you know, inherited in Barcelona an incredible group of players and a massive bank account that Barcelona is still paying for, for to this day, you know, and has had terrible, tr- you know, trouble surviving yeah. as a club. Yeah. You know, if you've been watching the news over mm-hmm. the years. And then he, you know, as things got a little tougher at Barcelona, he moved to Bayern Munich. He built his reputation with, honestly, a squad that you couldn't fail with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and then he goes to Bayern Munich when they had a squad that it was really difficult to fail with. And a massive bank account, you know, and, you know, and he spent, no question, he spent wisely, but he had a massive bank account. And then where does he go from Bayern? He goes to Manchester City. Little old club. You know, you know, with a massive bank account. And they've been in, in, a, in a wrangle with FIFA and everybody knows that they've cheated for years, you know, and they've gotten away with it because they're prepared to lawyer FIFA to death, you know, with the un- endless supply of money, you know, from Middle East oil. Yeah. You know, and so and at it, the end of the day, FIFA FIFA is making money off of Man City. They're doing fantastically with all their marketing and all that stuff. I mean, so the, at the end of the day, they're gonna sue them, but they're not really you know, and, going and, to. And people say, you know, ah, he's still a good coach. Well, you know, is Eddie Howe? You know, you know, eight years ago, Eddie Howe wasn't a good coach. You know, but you know, he he built his reputation. You know, with you know, on the south coast of England in the professional game. And then Newcastle, you know, comes into a whole, you know, <laughs> just gold mine of money. You know, they're, you know, they're bought out by the Middle East, you know, and all of a sudden Eddie Howe's this incredible coach. No, he's not. <laughs> I, I he's do, just a really good coach with lots of money. I, I, think, <laughs> you know, it's, it's I, think, I think, to be fair, I do think there are things about him that make him a good coach. For example, it's really hard. It's it's really hard to manage that much ego because you're talking about top, top, top players in the world, and you're having to be being able to manage their ego, making them play together. You know, that part for me, it's 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 what he does that makes him successful. It's what separates him to make the team with the big wallet and the big pocket successful. Well, in, in, in Eddie Howe's you know, favor is the fact that he took a smaller pro club you know, you know, and proved himself at a smaller pro club before he was taken on by Newcastle. Yeah. Newcastle has always been a sleeping giant. Massive fan support. Biggest club in the northeast of England. You know, ridiculously, fanatically faithful yeah. fan support. You know, in a way that none of the London clubs will ever get. You know, and and so, 
Um, you know, and Newcastle isn't an international darling. You know, they've always been, you know, a bit of a down and dirty club that, you know, didn't quite get that, you know, that international yeah. favor. You know, they're not Vogue, you know. Yeah. And, but, um, uh, and, and, and so, you know, he's done the job at the lower level. And so I've got more respect for Eddie Howe than I do for Guardiola. Oh, me too. You know, that I agree this, 100%. He worked with a limited budget. He worked with yeah. a limited roster. So I think Eddie Howe is a good coach. You know, he coached lesser players to a high level of personal achievement. You know, Pep Guardiola, until he goes to a lower level, you know, and makes that lower level team successful, I can't say or, that... Or, I, a team, or a team that is actually struggling. Yeah, I can't say that he's, he's a great coach because he's had all the money in his favor, the big club recognition in his favor. He's never had to do a down and dirty job with a, with a, a bunch of you know, uh, players that aren't at the very top level already or a club that's not got the huge bank account. So, you know, people worship Pep Guardiola. You know, I've read his books and he's definitely very knowledgeable. You know, I love the fact that he went to stay with Marco, um, Marcelo Bielsa and picked his brains because I think Bielsa's a genius, but he's had a lot of things in his favor. It's easy to be, fa to be successful when you come from you know, a, a moneyed background and you get the best education. Well, and then you look at Carlo Ancelotti, for example, and he won four or five Champions Leagues or six, I think, by now with Real Madrid and he's with three, four different clubs, you know, and it's throughout three decades, you know, the guy just, you know, wherever he goes, he, he, he makes something happen. So, you know, so, you know, the contrast, but, you know, my great friend from college, Paul Bolson, You know, it, you know, he got involved with the Swedish women first and then, you know, they started to explode in terms of their personal success. Then the men's team, they exploded with their personal sex success. Then he stayed with both of the Swedish teams, but he had some spare time. So he joined Sam Allardyce at Bolton and Bolton rose to the top four of the Premier League while Bolson was helping Sam Allardyce. Sure. You know, then he left there and he went to another, you know, friend of mine that used to work, play, coach for our club, joined Matt Crocker at Southampton. And Southampton had all sorts of success and developed all these great players that played for England and other big clubs in England. And then Paul left, left for Leicester City, you know, and Claudio Ranieri got all of the kudos for Leicester City winning the EPL. And it was Bolson. It was Bolson behind the scenes, retooled. They gave him a player's budget, you know, a whole transfer budget, you know, in order to, you know, get the science right. You know, and they had the smallest roster in the mm -hmm. EPL, but nobody got injured that season yeah, yeah. because Bolson did an incredible job with their physiology, you know, and but training them hard, but not so hard that, kid, you know, the yeah. players were getting injured, you know, and and uh, and so, you know, and, you know, Mares came out of nowhere and with Leicester City mm -hmm. built an incredible reputation. You know, Kante came out of nowhere and with Leicester City built an incredible vet reputation. Jamie Vardy. You know, built, but these guys stayed fit and healthy and were in the peak of condition. And you look at Kante, ever since he left Leicester City, what's been his Achilles heel? Injuries. Injuries. Yeah. Left, right, and center with Chelsea. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Injury after injury after injury, he lost Paul Balsam. You know, he lost the guru of, of getting it right, you know, getting it so that you're really pushing them to develop and you're keeping them right. This is about environment, knowledge within the environment. Sure. You know, and, you know, and so Paul Balsam, you know, three or four years ago, uh, three years ago, decided he, you know, it, his time with Leicester was up. They were still very competitive in the EPL, you know, and, and so he did something out of the box and he went to Tigres in Mexico. What did Tigres just win? 
They just won it, didn't they? They just won it. Yeah. Just won the whole thing. Yeah. Everywhere he goes, he raises the bar of performance, but he doesn't do it because he's got more money to play with. Yeah. He does it because he's just simply really, really good at what he does. Sure. You know, and I think that's our club. We're, we're a sleeper, the Legends Club. You know, we're really good at what we do. We make players great dribblers and goal scorers. You can score goals. Your passing has got to be brilliant. You know, we make them really brave, you know, and, and aggressive players because we do a lot of one-on-ones, a lot of two-on-twos. Transition, it's tongue-dragging. You've got to be tough. You know, you've got to be able to take a licking and keep on ticking, you know. And so our environment is all about, you know, down and dirty street soccer and the kids love it uh you you segue well how i wanted to end this episode uh wrap this up but tongue dragging i can't let that go i need to start using that when i'm talking to the kids like if you're not finishing every round with your tongue dragging on the floor then you're not giving everything that you're capable of i like that you know so as we as as we zoom out and compare the um the environment the family and the culture that uh the three of us um had that were distinctly different. The area that I really want to focus in on the most, um, because I think most of our our listeners, our audience, this is the part that is um, uh, um, uh, it's the gr- biggest blue ocean. It's the biggest area of opportunity for them to change in their local communities um, or in their <clears throat> in their coaching structure or wherever it is that they do their soccer. Um, they can have the biggest possible impact. Is we highlighted that the culture in Brazil is significantly better than the culture in the United States for developing players, right? We highlighted that the culture in England, though not nearly as good as Brazil, significantly better than the United States. And so we have to fill that somehow. And I talked about it earlier, but it is it is it is the the box soccer environment. It is box soccer courts, it is small boarded fields, it is the rebound surfaces. And and that is the differentiator. If we if we can slowly so, and, and don't discount how to use them optimally. For sure, for sure, for because, sure. Because you know you can you can put kids on those small fields, and the coaches actually put grids out there. Bad coaches, you know, will be in the middle of a boarded field and they'll stick a grid out there and they'll ignore the fact they've and got say, boards. If, if the ball touches the wall, it's out. <laughs> yeah, and it's stop and go. Yeah. You know, and, you know, and I pull my hair out when I see. You know, you know, one of our less educated, you know, coaches, you know, doing a grid system on fields that are designed for a much higher level of intensity and rebound and power and skill. Yeah. You know, and and yet they've just restricted the players to, you know, soft elements of the game, not game winning hard elements that they need to master. Yeah. 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 And that makes sense. and, And I think sometimes I don't point that out quite as much is because I grew up in the same philosophy. Right, I just did it without the boards, and now I apply the same philosophy. My sessions look almost identical. We had the boards in the winter. We had the boards in the winter, but even not the perfectly designed boards. They were rounded corners. They were. We didn't have the boxes as well. We didn't have the boxes, and we didn't have age-appropriate fields. Right. So when I was six, I was training on our biggest field that we have here, instead of um, uh, designed for eighteen-year-olds. Yeah, it was designed for eighteen-year-olds. Right. But all so 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 those were the same, but. Maybe this illustrates the point better than anything else. Maybe this is the best way to wrap it up, is the players that are being developed by this philosophy and this coaching structure now in the last 10 years are so much better 
and 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 so many more players at that high level at that elite level compared to what existed in the 90s and early 2000s which was my era of playing and early era of coaching um, and it it, it it blows me away when I zoom out and look at the differences between the two and 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 the only discernible difference because the the coaches are largely the same the way they coach is largely the same is the environment. And so I think if there's one giant change that we can make to, to, to make up for our lack of soccer culture compared to Brazil or lack of, of culture just in general and how it impacts soccer compared to Brazil, it's, it's creating street soccer environments that fit our culture for parents to drop their kids off um, and, and, and play creatively and be coached um, in such a way that, that allows them to become brave, creative leaders with the ball at their feet. But, but don't discount the importance of the coaches because we we have coaches within our organization that are much less effective than you two for example you know so you know we have a complete spectrum of coaches you know from the guys that really buy in and you know because they use the rebound services in the areas optimally they get optimally you know developed players yeah you know and then we have other coaches that kind of half buy in you know, and their players are way more creative than other clubs in sure. Kansas City, you know, but they're not quite as creative as, you know, our top echelon of coaches that have really studied and really bought in. Yeah. You know, and, and then inevitably there's going to be one or two, not many coaches that don't really buy in, you know, and you go and watch their games and you see smatterings of skill over and above what the other teams are showing, but you don't see the out there on the ragged edge brilliance that you do if you go and watch Philippe's teams, your teams, Andrew, you know, and so, you know, it's a constant challenge to educate everybody for sure, for sure. to go more towards the ragged edge of individual brilliance. Yeah. You know, I, I it was funny because the other day we had a text thread in which there was a clip of two minute clip of a semifinal of two bo- age group, two boys teams on the same age group of my boys, on a different league, you know, but a really, really high-level game. Uh, and it was just purely kickball. Like, the post was about, what are we teaching the kids? So it was a great post. It was literally two minutes, the ball barely touched the ground. It was like nobody settled. The ball just kept then clearing their heads, playing long balls, the other one clearing, controlling, trying to play a long ball, just that. Just yeah. that for two minutes. And I was watching, and like all the text thread oh, this is not fair, it's just a two-minute clip. And then the guy's like, this is the whole game, go watch, have fun. And like him saying, this is the whole game, I promise. And I'm like, that's, that's not my game. I mean, yeah. we might not win every game, but I mean, at least is entertaining. Yeah. At least yeah. is entertaining. I, I, you know, I watched that whole clip, you know, expecting to see at least something that was sure. remotely skillful. Nah. You know, and what was the prevailing emotion in, in, that, in that game? Fear. Fear. None of those kids wanted to bring it down. You, you could almost tell that, you know, over the years, those kids had tried to bring the ball down and been abused by their coaches mm-hmm. because that ball had been lost closer to their goal. So what did they do? Bang it up in the air and, and generally forward. And, and it was the most disgustingly horrible. I mean, we would literally lose every single spectator that had ever watched a game in this sport if that was how the professional game was played. Now, a lot of professional teams drive me crazy because they go backwards and sideways for about 80%, 90% of their possessions. Drives me crazy. You never see the Brazilian teams going backwards and sideways. And that's, and that's the part that I... That 
I always talk about. For me, soccer is not just result. I'm sorry. It's it's it. Every sport. It's what's the goal of a sport? Is to entertain. You gotta appreciate what you're watching. You gotta enjoy the product, right? Obviously, the goal of a professional organization has to be to win. But I've seen in Brazil, especially recently in the last two, three years, after you know, 24 years, we're like, wait a minute, we're trying to copy Europe and it's not working. Let's start going back to ourselves and see what happens. So it's starting to get back. It's just more fun to watch. It's so, more fun to watch. So if you allow me, you know, the, the, the largesse, I would like to use free climbing as a comparison with soccer. You know, uh, are either of you f familiar with the name Alex Honnold? Nope. No. He's the, uh, the first guy to free climb Yosemite. Okay, I am only because you've talked about him before. Right. But, and, yeah. and, you know, and, and, you know there's, there's a whole movie about it, and it's fantastic. And Honnold, you know, goes up without any ropes, without any safety devices, and, he, you know, he goes over and over this route again and again and again, up and down, up and down, up and down, until he gets each pitch. You know, absolutely perfect. Because one failure means... He's, he's going to fall and bounce off the ground. He's death. Oh, he's yeah. dead. He'll die. But die yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, and, and, uh, and so... Um, and, and I look at, you know... Now, I think the guy's, you know, certifiably insane. <laughs> the, you know, just, just last week, there was, you know, a, a woman that was free climbing a range in, in the USA somewhere, you know, and fell to her death. You know, because you've only got to be 100 feet up and if you fall, you're dead. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, it just happened last week, you know. And so, you know, uh, you know, now don't get me wrong. It's got to be a fantastic feeling of power sure. when you can free climb. Yeah. Well, we're the free climbing soccer club. You know, we're the ones that are taking our lives into our hands and beating people and getting our ankles chopped and stuff. But nothing that happens to our players. In fact, we're incredibly resilient. Nobody's to died yet. Nobody's died yet. You know, yeah. so we're incredibly. Daniel Sanchez is pretty close. I'm telling you, like they, he, that kid gets abused in games, and it's <laughs> driving me nuts. Yeah, but but you know, you're lucky it's today though, because 30 years ago, sure, the game was vicious. Oh yeah, you know, so there, you know, kids are a lot more protected today. This is a great time to be a deceptive dribbler yeah. compared to any decade in the past. It's getting better as every decade goes by, you know, and so. So, you know, what you've got is you've got this, uh, you know, it's like free climbing mentality, but without the death. Yeah. You know, so you're bringing, you know, you're building this bravery. You're going for it. You know, you're looking into the teeth of the mouth of the lion and you're saying, come on, try and bite sure. me, you know. Sure. And uh, the one thing I don't understand about free climbing, though, is why don't they have one of these little pocket parachutes? Yeah. <laughs> So that if they do miss a handhold at 200 feet up Yosemite, you know, the El Capitan, you know, and, and you know, that, that it's a very hard climb, according yeah. to everything I've read and seen. You know, if they do miss a handhold and they fall, they can actually quickly reach to their back pocket and release the parachute. We'll cover the science behind that on the next episode. Yeah, maybe it's just they're absolutely crazy. But <laughs> I would be wearing an escape parachute. Yeah. You know, they want adrenaline. Yeah, it has yeah. to be. It. it has to be. Yeah. Well, it's going to be an adrenaline enough as you lose your handhold and you're not sure whether the parachute's going to save you. That's enough, isn't it? <laughs> for you know, for a semi-normal person, <laughs> which 
Okay. Well, um, guys, this was a, another fun episode. It was good to wrap up this series. I'm eager to see where we go next. The Women's World Cup is upon us, so we'll have some uh, some of that. I'm sure to talk about at some point too. And so. and you know, just out of curiosity, did anybody watch the uh, you know the, the the Canada game yesterday? I did not. No, no. against yeah. Nigeria, right? Yeah, yeah. It, um, so Christine Sinclair wins a penalty. You know, the, the referee didn't give it immediately, and, but she went and looked at the VAR, and you know, and so she gives the penalty, and it was a penalty, a clear, you know, yeah. kick, kick in the ankle brought Christine Sinclair down. Yeah. So she earns the penalty, and she steps up to take it, and had she have scored, she would have scored in six consecutive World Cups, and that would be a world record. She missed it. Goalie made a great save, low to the left, you know, and saved her penalty kick. You know, but you could watch by her body language, she wasn't sure. Because in the past, the commentator was saying that she's given up opportunities to take PKs. You know, and walked away from it and given it to somebody else. You know, and, and so, so she looked unsure in the, in the build-up. Some people, you look at them, you think, God, she looks confident. confident. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and, but, you know, Sinclair yesterday didn't look confident in the approach to interesting, that. Interesting, interesting. You know, to that. So, you know, I'm sleep-deprived right now because I stayed up and watched the whole game, <laughs> you know, and that's, you know, that's how crazy I am about this sport. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and Canada, you know, is, is one of the sleepers, you know. Yeah. And on any given day, they can be they can any be team. You know, and so, you know, they're kind of in that, in that, you know, next bag of teams with Australia that, you know, could win yep. if everything goes their way. Yeah. You know, behind, you know, the typical favorites, the Germanys, the USA, you know, the, you know, the big dogs that have come up in the past. Brazil, Canada, Australia, they're all there with a possibility on any given day, like England in 1966, yeah. they can win the World Cup, yep. you know. Well, cool. Well, great episode, guys. Philippe, Andy, thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Until Thanks, next guys. time. A lot of fun.